0: NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit, credit to the people.
1: I'm Alicia Menendez. Alex has the night off. Here's a thing that has happened every day, like clockwork, for as long as many of us can remember. Every day, the White House sends out to the media something called the daily guidance. It's a basic schedule for the president that day. Here's a recent one for President Biden. At the top, there are a few paragraphs describing what the president's day will entail. And below that, there's a schedule of the major events planned. Getting the daily intelligence briefing, any major meetings, the timing of any travel the president is doing... The White House puts out the daily guidance so that the press can plan its coverage and so that you, the American people, can know the basic outlines of what our president is doing on any given day. This is something that is done every day, by every White House, under every president. But just a couple weeks before the end of Donald Trump's presidency, something truly weird happened. Do you remember this? The White House started issuing daily guidance that just said this. President Trump will work from early in the morning until late in the evening. He will make many calls and have many meetings. And then maybe it would mention something about a campaign rally he was doing. That was it. He will make many calls and have many meetings. Now, many people assumed at the time that this was the White House communication staff covering for the fact that the president, a couple weeks before leaving office, had simply stopped working. But now thanks to new transcripts released by the January 6th committee, we know that the explanation is even more ridiculous. According to a transcript of the committee's interview with one of Trump's deputy press secretaries, Donald Trump didn't know the White House guidance existed until the last weeks of his term. Upon learning that his schedule was being made public, he personally insisted on changing the way his daily schedule was described. Quote, Every evening, we prepared and released a daily guidance for the following day of the president's public schedule, beginning sometime around mid to late December. The president discovered that, for the first time, my understanding, that we released a public schedule of his to the public. He wanted to change the way we did that. The language about working from early in the morning until late in the evening and making many calls and having many meetings, well, it was language that Trump, quote, personally had to prove that we could disseminate about his public schedule. Among all the riveting and sobering and disturbing things we have learned from the January 6th committee's investigation and their transcripts, there are also gems like these, where we learn that while Donald Trump was trying to overturn an election to cling to power through undemocratic means, it was also taking time to micromanage White House press releases to make sure people knew he was working, quote, really hard. But here's a serious question about these transcripts. The January 6th committee releases these transcripts day by day, batch by batch, of all the interviews they conducted. We are getting all these new insights into the evidence the committee collected in their investigation. Trump's chief of staff allegedly burned documents in his fireplace. Trump considering blanket pardons for January 6th rioters and his political allies. Trump's treasury secretary Googling the 25th Amendment, you know, the one about removing a president after the attack on the Capitol. This is all good knowledge for us to have as citizens committee's work is also making its way into criminal cases around January 6th. Just today, a federal judge cited the January 6th report for the first time in the case of a January 6th rioter, ruling that Trump may have been urging his supporters to break the law when he sent them to the Capitol that day. And it's a remarkable moment of transparency to see all the investigative work that our Congress has done made available to the public. We expect to see more and more transcripts released in the coming days. But what does it mean for the ongoing Justice Department investigation into January 6th to have all these full transcripts out in the public domain now? The DOJ and the January 6th committee have gone back and forth for months about whether and how much the committee is sharing their work with the department. Back in May, the committee refused a Justice Department request for transcripts of its interviews. Then they said they would start sharing them. As recently as a month ago, Attorney General Merrick Garland seemed to suggest that they still hadn't gotten everything. But while the Justice Department has long wanted the January 6th committee to share its work with them, they may not have wanted them to share it quite so publicly. Joining us now, Chuck Rosenberg, former U.S. attorney and senior FBI official. Chuck, thank you so much, as always, for being here. I mean, obviously, the 1-6th committee, they have been releasing a lot of transcripts from the 1,000-plus interviews they conducted over the course of their investigation. Can you talk to us about why the committee is doing that? And then the effect that that has on DOJ's investigation into the January 6th attack.
2: Well, certainly, Alicia. So the committee has an incentive to be transparent. They want to show their work. That's what I used to do on middle school math tests. I got some credit for showing my work, (laughs) even if I got the wrong answer. So understanding their institutional perspective on dumping all of these transcripts into the public domain is useful, but it's also useful to look at it from the perspective of the Justice Department. The Justice Department, when they're doing investigations, does not show its work for a bunch of simple reasons. But let me just mention two. And they're both implicated by what's going on now. The Justice Department does not want witnesses seeing what other witnesses said, because if you do that, Witness A and Witness B and Witness C could all tailor their story. Uh, to one another, and to what other people said, right? Ill-intentioned witnesses could get their stories together. Not helpful. And then there's a second thing, more nefarious and potentially more dangerous. And we saw a lot of this, if you think back, Alicia, to the Mueller report, volume two, described this huge pattern of obstructive conduct by the president and some folks around him. You don't want vulnerable witnesses intimidated or harassed or worse. And so the Department of Justice absolutely wanted the transcripts. They just didn't want them dumped into the public domain. And understanding the, the respective institutional perspectives, I think, helps explain what's going on here.
1: To, to your point, though, this is the first point that you made about the possibility of people then tailoring their testimony based on others' testimony, it's still, if they testified before the 1 6 Committee, would have to track with what they told the committee.
2: Well, it would have to track, except for one thing that you always would see as a prosecutor or an investigator, which is that people sometimes, um, and and, and sort of faultlessly, get details wrong, or they remember things Mm -hmm. in interview three that they didn't mention in interview one. Um, That happens all the time. Discrepancies always occur. In fact, The way I think about it, Alicia, it's some evidence that people are telling the truth. They're struggling to remember things. Uh, They say, uh, you know, they say A and then not A. That's okay. But what will happen here with a thousand plus transcripts being dumped into the public sphere is that defense attorneys, many Mm -hmm. of them good and honorable, some of them less so, are going to spend a lot of time seeing what witnesses said about their potential clients. And that's what worries me. There's a reason the Justice Department doesn't do its investigations publicly. There's a reason Congress does. Again, they have different uh, institutional interests. But uh, dumping stuff into the public domain can put witnesses at risk, and it can help people tell their stories to one another. Not Here's a thing.
1: thing. Here's the thing, Chuck. We know DOJ asked for the committee's transcripts earlier this year. They didn't receive them. Now the committee is releasing them to the public. I-, I wonder if you think the Department of Justice would have made their concerns clear to the committee about this in advance. And how would those kinds of conversations even play out?
2: Oh, well, I imagine they did. And, and more so, Alicia Uh, A a number of the uh, senior staff on the committee are former federal prosecutors and very good ones. They would have understood the different institutional interests. I know at least Congressman Schiff, uh, perhaps others, uh, but Congressman Schiff Schiff was a uh, federal prosecutor in California. He would have understood the different institutional interests. So hard for me to imagine that the Department of Justice didn't tell the committee what it preferred, and that the committee didn't understand what the Justice Department preferred. But again, the committee wanted to show its work. I get that, but it's not at all helpful here. The committee said it wanted to cooperate with the Department of Justice. Well, there are two ways it could have done that, at least two ways that come immediately to my mind. They could have given the Justice Department these transcripts months and months ago, and they could have done it privately and quietly.
1: Before I let you go, Jamie Raskin told my colleague Chris Hayes tonight that the DOJ case against Trump, in his mind, is open and shut. Take a listen. Oh, we do not have that sound. Uh, I wonder, though, if you think it is open and shut, Chuck Rosenberg.
2: Well, I saw what the committee presented. And look, they did a compelling job. It was linear and cogent and thoughtful. But proving something in a committee room is very different than proving something in a federal courtroom. And I would really hesitate without seeing all of the stuff that's out there to tell you that it's open and shut. It seems like there's good evidence, but proving it to a jury unanimously by proof beyond a reasonable doubt is hard. And by the way, you know this. In the committee room, there's no judge, there's no defense attorney, there's no cross-examination, there's no federal rules of evidence, there's no federal rules of criminal procedure. And so, very different venues, not only with different institutional interests, but with very different procedures. Uh, I I I would be careful about saying that anything is open and shut without seeing all of the evidence.
1: Chuck Rosenberg, I appreciate your appropriate caution. As always, former U.S. attorney, senior FBI official Chuck Rosenberg, thank you so much for your time, for your expertise. We have a lot more to get to tonight, including the Republican Party at a crossroads. Do they stay the course and commit even more fully to Trumpism, or do they take another path? But before we get to that, if you are watching this from the comfort of your own home, consider yourself lucky. When we come back, the holiday travel nightmare is far from over for thousands of Americans and for the airline at the center of the chaos. Stay with us.
3: Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.
4: Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call.
5: The four-letter word you're hearing here is mess, M-E-S-S. You see all the luggage here. It made it. Fine. But the people didn't. As
4: you can see behind me right here, we have a sea of luggage here in the middle of the food court where they've set up a makeshift baggage claim area here.
1: I missed dialysis today, and that's what takes the toxins and the fluid off your body. I needed it yesterday. No idea where her medicine and bags are, Andreessen still booked a separate flight to Kansas City to get home. Airports all across the country are overflowing with unclaimed luggage tonight. Passengers have reported spending multiple days sifting through seas of luggage, often with little to no help from staff. At Denver International Airport alone, there are more than 10,000 pieces of unclaimed luggage. With all of this airport chaos, you might think that we are still in the middle of last week's blizzard, but we're not. This week's airport chaos is being caused by one airline, Southwest. According to the flight tracker FlightAware, Southwest has canceled more than 2,500 flights today alone. To put that into perspective, the cancellations for JetBlue, American, United, and Delta combined today were just about 100 flights. Overall, Southwest has canceled more than 13,000 flights since last Thursday. Their customer service has been completely overwhelmed. Passengers reporting lines and call wait times that last hours, often without a resolution once passengers actually get through to customer service. And these cancellations aren't just annoyances. They are leaving travelers all across the country stranded without their belongings, forcing many to figure out their own food, hotel accommodations, and alternate routes home. Mike Patel and seven other family members flying southwest were stranded,
5: so he booked an Allegiant flight just to get to Des Moines before driving home to Omaha.
0: Four days we were stuck. We had to book this Allegiant flight for $3,000. Then yesterday, hotel night, buy our own food. It cost me 10. Car renting,
6: Uber, it's almost $10,000. I was supposed to connect in Denver, but they dropped us off here and told us that we had to reschedule our flight.
1: So now you're stuck in a city where you know no one?
7: I do not know anyone here. I've never been to this city. Um... It's just been really rough.
1: Adding to his troubles, he says Southwest told him they're unable to offer food or hotel vouchers because they don't have contracts with any Kansas City businesses. So he says he's been paying for a hotel out of his own pocket, but now he's out of money with no place to go until at least Thursday. And it's not just the passengers who are roughing it right now. The union representing Southwest's ground crew released a statement today saying their members have been working 16-hour shifts... And that some have developed frostbite from prolonged exposure to cold temperatures. Unions representing Southwest pilots and flight attendants say their members have been stuck sleeping at airports because they were unable to find hotel rooms. And that is all on top of having to deal with thousands of angry customers every day. Southwest CEO issued an apology last night saying that they are doing everything they can to return to a normal operation and that he is truly sorry. And today, Southwest rolled out a new website specifically for travelers to submit requests for refunds. But the whole thing is such an M-E-S-S mess that Washington is getting involved. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg told my colleagues at NBC Nightly News yesterday that he's going to hold Southwest accountable, make sure they give financial compensation to their customers. Top members of the Senate Commerce Committee have vowed to look into this week's Southwest debacle. But what exactly is causing this kind of issue at Southwest? Well, other airlines were fine. And how do you fix it? Joining us now, Justin George, transportation reporter for the Washington Post. Justin, thank you so much for being with us. Explain this to me. Why is Southwest such a mess right now? What happened?
5: Yeah, it's pretty staggering. Um, it's basically a perfect storm of what happened here. You had uh, antiquated sort of older um, scheduling systems. You have so many things, so many variables you're working with when you're talking about flights. You're talking about positioning airplanes and crews and pilots and um, runways and gates and all those things have to sort of work together. Well, uh, according to employees, according to the union, according to analysts, Southwest has long been sort of working with sort of -of out-of-date equipment. And, um, you know, They've been urging uh, the airline to make an upgrade like many airlines have, and they haven't yet. Uh, They've been slow to do so for whatever reason. And they've gotten by in the past, past storms, because they've been very centralized. They've been like centralized in the state. And their systems can sort of recover from that um, pretty quickly, or, or you know, in a matter of matter of days or so. But what happened is we saw a massive winter storm here, winter storm Elliott, that blanketed like sixty percent of the nation and hit a lot of the airports, including many of them um, that Southwest obviously serves. And that just created just a huge chain reaction of disruptions and uh, stranding passengers, obviously crew, pilots, planes. And as that information is sort of coming back in, its systems cannot handle it all. And so while the other airlines were able to sort of um, get up and running, Southwest wasn't. And Southwest also had, um, you know, the most flights um, domestically. So they're sort of dealing with that. You had a huge winter storm and you have antiquated equipment here that you're dealing with.
1: Well, and then there's a third component. You reported today on an internal memo that a VP at Southwest sent a week ago. Today, raising red flags about staffing shortages. Why is that memo then important here? How does it factor in?
5: Yeah, that occurred in Denver with ground crew workers apparently on December 21st. Uh, There was a big sort of run up of people who were sick were calling out or taking personal days during that afternoon or evening. And that's about when the the storm was hitting. So uh, the vice president of Southwest issued a state of emergency, basically mandating that everybody has to go to work. Uh, If you're going to be sick, you needed a doctor's um, note. It wasn't good enough to have a telemedicine note. You needed to actually have a physical doctor sort of tell you, you know, give you a reason for being out. Um, and that's part of their union contract is what Southwest tells me. They say it's unusual. Southwest has maintained this whole time that they have not had any staffing shortages and they were prepared for the storm. And, um, you know, I. It's difficult to say, because clearly with that um, area, the the ground crew there in Denver, there was a shortage. There was enough of a shortage for them to raise a state of emergency. But just from talking to pilots and seeing other things from what pilots and and other crew are saying, it does appear that they did have enough staff. And this really um, seems to be a problem of the internal systems. You have pilots, uh, passengers, customers, everybody trying to call in um, because their systems, again, require sort of uh, manual sort of reporting and things like that. And it just can't handle, uh, you know, the the number of calls, and the amount of information that's coming in.
1: Justin George, transportation reporter for The Washington Post. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Joining us now, David Slotkin, senior aviation business reporter for thepointsguy.com. David, thanks so much for being with us. You know, you tweeted that people's lives are likely to be ruined by Southwest meltdown. What did you mean by that?
0: Thanks for having me. You know, it's a very tough situation that I think a lot of passengers are going through right now. Uh, People are stranded. I mean, they're literally stranded. This is the busiest travel period of the year. There aren't a lot of uh, seats available for people. It's hard to get rebooked on another airline. And when it comes down to it, a lot of this, including the passengers that you showed earlier on the program, um, really just have to pay their own way. They're buying their own hotel rooms, they're buying their own alternate flights. Um, And that's not something that everybody can afford. You know, it's Christmas. People travel with their families. People save up. This is their one flight of the year. They don't necessarily have money for a last-minute ticket for a family of five or for a week in a hotel room while Southwest gets its operations sorted. So, you know, what I was really getting at was it's it's this is something that has real impact on real people. It's frustrating enough Mm. and terrible enough to miss Christmas or to miss seeing family or be stuck for a few days, but this can really cause a lot of problems for some people.
1: Yeah, I'm struck by the sound from the woman at the top who talked about the possibility of missing her dialysis appointment and what that would mean for her. I guess a lot of people watch this and they wonder, what rights do travelers in this country have when an airline messes up like this?
0: And that's the real unfortunate thing. There aren't many rights that you're entitled to. Uh, The number one thing that you do get, no matter what, is a refund on the flight that's canceled. But that doesn't necessarily cover your expenses. Now, Southwest has said that they're voluntarily choosing uh to consider reimbursing passengers for reasonable expenses. So that's uh hotel, alternate transportation, food, potentially. Um, The thing is, they don't have any obligation to do this. So it's going to be on a voluntary basis. We reached yep. out to Southwest today. They told us that everything is going to be considered case by case. So... What does that mean? And if you don't have right. really the savings to be able to afford a situation like this, do you risk maybe buying a last minute flight that Southwest may or may not be able to reimburse?
1: So here's the thing I want you to help me understand. Southwest has said that they're actually going to lower the number of flights that they're trying to fly for the next few days in order to reset, get back on track. How does, how does that work? How do you get all of these stranded people to their destinations with fewer flights?
0: It's a very hard thing to do, and it's going to take a few days to do it. A key thing, too, is that Southwest actually put a limit on their inventory, so they're basically not selling flights um, for at least a few days as they work to cancel flights through at least Friday. Uh, They're planning to cancel about two-thirds of their network. Um, and the idea is that they didn't want people booking onto flights that are then going to end up getting canceled. So that's just more confusion and more frustration. But it means that once they're up and running again, then it's going to be an operation to get everyone who hasn't found some kind of alternate means where they need to go. Um, and we're going to see that coming through the weekend, I think, and through potentially next week.
1: I think it would be easy to to look at this story and say, okay, this this happened one time. No, this is a systems problem. This is a structural problem. And I wonder if you see a potential long-term fix here. I mean, are we talking about legislation? Are we talking about regulation? What would it really take to get at the heart of what consumers are up against?
0: Yeah, you know, the DOT has been very vocal over this administration on passengers' rights on enforcing airline compliance. uh, But those rights— Again, are fairly limited. To do more, you would have to see some sort of legislation. Now, whether we actually see that or not, it remains to be seen. It, it would be a very big step. Obviously, there's protections like that in Europe, but not here. Um, we're going to have to see what happens. I think, at the very least, we're going to have to see um, Southwest is going to make some changes to their technology to everything that's sort of backing the system. Um, but in terms of passenger rights, it's a big question.
1: Big question indeed. David Slotkin, senior aviation business reporter for thepointsguide.com. Thank you so much for being with us. We have a lot more to talk about tonight, including questions about one of why the most important elements of the January 6th attack on the Capitol gets a mere mention in the congressional investigation's blockbuster report. We've got more on what is missing and why. But first, as the Republican Party wrestles with the legacy of Trumpism's midterm election failures, they face a big choice— who's going to lead them into 2024. More on that next.
3: Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.
4: Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call.
1: Tonight, a district attorney in New York state has just announced an investigation into Republican Congressman-elect George Santos. Santos was discovered to have repeatedly fabricated parts of his personal biography while running for office, lying about everything from where he graduated college to whether or not he is a member of the Jewish faith. George Santos's election to a congressional seat previously controlled by Democrats had been one of the few election victories that Republicans could point to this cycle. In an election year that should have favored Republicans, Trump-backed, election-denying candidates cost the GOP their shot at the Senate and control of several state houses. Now, the party is looking to cast the blame for those losses on a key Trump ally, Republican National Committee Chair Ronna Romney McDaniel. According to The New York Times, McDaniel could be considered a Trump proxy by Republicans, eager to begin to eradicate what many consider to be the party's preeminent problem, the former president's influence over the GOP. But for Republicans looking to move their party past Trump, there's just one problem. All of the candidates who've stepped up to try and replace McDaniel, they are even Trumpier than she is. So far, the list of would-be party chairs includes Charlie Kirk, leader of the pro-Trump group Turning Point USA, Hermite Dillon, a Trump loyalist and ally of Fox News host Tucker Carlson, and, of course, the Pillow guy, who spends all his time making wild claims about how China stole the election from Trump. Same problem we see playing out in the House of Representatives, where longtime Trump ally Kevin McCarthy is facing a revolt from far-right members of his caucus who think the party's only mistake is not doing more to embrace Trumpism. We're also seeing the same dynamic play out in the race to replace Trump himself. The Washington Post reports that several key Republicans are gearing up to challenge Donald Trump for the 2024 presidential nomination. Among them. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who already leads Trump in some early head-to-head polls, was reportedly preparing to enact a far-right agenda that includes new abortion restrictions, loosening gun safety laws, and attacks on so-called woke corporations. In other words, the Republican Party appears poised to further embrace Trumpism in a way it never has before, even as the spotlight on Trump himself begins to fade. Joining us now, former Florida Republican Congressman David Jolly. He is no longer affiliated with the Republican Party. He is also an MSNBC contributor. It is good to see you, you know, George Santos under investigation. I I wonder what you make of this whole story, but specifically now, as we have this development, what that means for Republican House Conference.
6: Yeah, look, George Santos likely to survive for about two years and then be voted out by the voters of New York's third congressional district. He now faces a federal investigation. The only way that would likely bring him down would be if it's related to financial crimes. Where did his income come from? Was there tax fraud or or so forth? Beyond that, expect Kevin McCarthy to lead the effort to have Santos seated next Tuesday. He wants Santos's vote For Speaker of the House. And then House Republicans have very little options unless there's an indictment. They likely will allow him all the privileges of a member of the House unless there is some additional scandal that causes them to remove him from committees. But Congressman Santos very well might be around for two years.
1: Okay, before we even get to what it means for Kevin McCarthy's bid for the speakership, that he needs to keep this guy in place because he's uh, counting votes on that kind of margin. You have the New York Post reporting that members of the Republican leadership... Knew about Santos's life. Yes. Yeah. But we're keeping it quiet. I mean, I, I know that's not surprising to you, but I, I do wonder what it tells you. And if you think that not reporting it is, is a problem for him.
6: Oh, sure. Look, I mean, House seats, Alicia, are essentially commodities that are traded between the parties and big business and deep pocketed donors. Um, the candidate matters less than actually winning the district for their the red or blue column. And so Republicans are happy to have George Santos in a, in a caucus, frankly, where lying is kind of commonplace. I mean, in Congress and on dating apps, you get to lie as much as you want. It's kind of accepted socially. The only difference is on dating apps, you can ghost the person, but in Congress, you got him for two years. Republicans have George Santos now for two years. The fact that they overlooked what they knew were lies and went along with the lie not only makes them culpable, but should be a mark of shame on today's GOP caucus.
1: I tip my hat to you, sir, for that very tech savvy um, comparison there. You know, I, I'm struck by the I fact that... I don't know which that, way
6: you swipe, Alicia. <laughs> I don't know which way you swipe to get rid of one of them, but I know you swipe one way. Yeah, you swipe one way <laughs> or the
1: other. Uh, it, it strikes me that it, it seems the Republicans haven't figured out exactly how they feel about the Santos thing or or how to sort of organize themselves around it. right? So you have like MTG defending Santos and attacking Tucker Carlson's TV show for asking him about his lies. It seems to be sort of crossing their wires,
6: yeah, so look, Taylor Green's an interesting one because the truth is in modern politics, you don't need your party infrastructure if you can create a national constituency. Marjorie Taylor Greene raises more money outside of the Kevin McCarthy machine than she does within it. Matt mm. Gates, Lauren mm-hmm. Boebert and others have created a national following. The question is, can George Santos, who is now widely considered a fraud and, and mocked for his lying, can he create this victimhood constituency that other Republicans have? That's a tough sell, but you're starting to see him use that language. He's blaming Democrats saying they lie more than I do. I don't know if he can pull it off. If he can, then we might have him around for quite some time.
1: I want to ask you sort of a different component of this disarray, which is what you make of the fight that's happening inside the RNC.
6: Yeah, look, a lot of crazies are fighting to try to lead uh, the flock, if you will. I mean, McDaniel likely can't hold on. If you saw the Texas State Committee unanimously uh, voted a, a vote of no confidence in the sitting chairwoman Rom, uh, Romney McDaniel, and there are other crazies ready to take over for her, so I suspect that her her support will erode, and maybe she is replaced. There's very little the RNC does in terms of actual electioneering, other than f- help facilitate a national primary, and that's where the McDaniel Trump co- uh, relationship. Has been so critical to Donald Trump. Without McDaniel at the helm, who knows what her predecessor might do in an open primary with a DeSantis and a Pompeo and others?
1: Well, to that point, the Washington Post is reporting several Trump alternatives. Let's tick through them Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, Chrissy you know, they, they all look like they might be running against Trump. I, I know it's early. I just wonder what you make of that list of names.
6: It's DeSantis and everybody else. I mean, the interesting Mm -hmm. thing is Donald Trump is running a terrible campaign right now. And so you'd have to give the nod to Ron DeSantis. Can Donald Trump up his game? Maybe out of survival in in a political race, he will do that. This feels more like the two thousand Republican nomination process where George W. Bush was kind of coronated start to finish. He was the front runner. There was nobody else. Look, DeSantis has not faced the national stage, and very importantly, as you and I have discussed, on election night. The nation did not choose the type of politics that Trump and DeSantis in the state of Florida have otherwise offered. DeSantis will make the case that he's the better messenger and that's why he's so strong in Florida. But the rest of the country has said, we don't want that. And and they said that in 18 and in 20 and 22. So I'm not sure DeSantis's hot hand is enough to carry him through 24, to be but here,
1: honest. But here's the thing. I, I don't disagree with your analysis at all, but I, I guess my question is, if the rest of the field sees him as the frontrunner and they see him as the front runner because he is trying to be even Trumpier than Trump, do they tack in the opposite direction or do they just try to
6: out trump him uh, well here's the inside ball game you rattle ron desantis he is somebody who has an incredibly fragile ego easily rattled easily defensive loses his temper mocks people as we saw him do with that college student who was wearing a mask so you're not going to outright uh ron desantis if you will look he's he's used migrants for theater denies history science um, it has angered the LGBT community. He's angered people of, of faith and frankly, those who wish to express their own speech. He is he check all those boxes for a Republican candidate. He satisfies those. What he can't do is really survive the heat of a race. And so what a smart Pompeo or Pence or somebody would do is rattle Ron DeSantis. And then you might see somebody that the nation really says, this guy's unprepared to lead the country.
1: David Jolly, always appreciate when you give us the inside game. Thank you for your time tonight. And there is to more back. to come tonight, including a major aspect of the January 6th riot that somehow did not make it into the January 6th committee's report. It's missing from that narrative. Why? It's just ahead.
5: I think had there not been some of these kind of errant prophecies you know, this 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 idea that,
1: you know, God has ordained it to be Trump. Um, I'm not sure January 6 would have happened like it did. Errant prophecies that was outgoing Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, member of the January 6th committee, speaking to the incredible impact that Christian nationalism had on January 6th. Christian nationalism, the belief that the United States should be run by Christians and Christian theology has become a growing and dangerous political identity among conservatives. You'll recall on January 6th, rioters prayed outside the Capitol, carried crosses, held up flags saying, Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president. They even prayed inside the Capitol on the floor of the Senate, you know, during an insurrection. But within the 845 page January 6th report, Christian nationalism was only cited once in a passive reference to white supremacist Nick Fuentes. The report did not go into detail about the influence and role of religion in the attack. But that doesn't mean that these extremist views didn't play a role in the attack. Earlier this month, during an oversight subcommittee hearing, religious freedom expert Amanda Tyler testified to the role of Christian nationalism on January 6th.
7: Christian nationalism helped fuel the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, uniting disparate actors and infusing their political cause with religious fervor. Christian nationalism often overlaps with and provides cover for white supremacy and racial subjugation.
1: That part right there, this political identity, specifically white Christian nationalism, not only associated with January 6th, it's a growing movement among conservatives. Take likely 2024 contender, Republican governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, who we're just talking about, and his message to college students earlier this year.
5: Put on the full armor of God. Stand firm against the left schemes. You will face... Flaming arrows, but if you have the shield of faith, you will overcome them. But I can tell you this, I have only begun to fight.
1: Joining us now, Amanda Tyler. She's the executive director for the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. Ms. Tyler, thank you so much for being here. You know, I'm struck. You testified to Congress that Christian nationalism helped fuel the January 6th attack. Tell me more about why you believe this.
7: Well, thanks for covering this really important topic, Alicia. You know, I think understanding Christian nationalism alone does not explain the January 6th attack, but we will not understand what happened at the Capitol on January 6th if we don't confront Christian nationalism. The symbols of Christian nationalism were on full display, not only on January 6th itself, but at numerous rallies leading up to the attack. And uh, in a report that BJC Baptist Joint Committee produced with the Freedom From Religion Foundation, we put out a comprehensive accounting of all of the ways that Christian nationalism worked to turn what was a political cause into one that was infused with religious fervor and worked to unite this disparate group of attackers in a common cause to attack our democracy through violent
1: means. Talk to me more about that point and the point that you made in some of your testimony, right, that this is not just Christian nationalism. This is white Christian nationalism and sort of the tie we see between white supremacy and this idea that America should be governed by religion.
7: Yeah. So Christian nationalism is a political ideology and a cultural framework that is pervasive and persistent and is not new. It really dates back to the country's founding and relies on this mythology of the formation of the country as a quote unquote Christian nation, one founded by Christians for Christians and one that has a special place, particularly for those who held power at the country's founding, native born white Christians. This ideology attacks our foundational values of religious freedom for all. It undercuts democracy itself. And for Christians like me, it also is a gross distortion of Christianity itself.
1: The January sixth committee's uh, Liz Cheney spokesperson told the Washington Post last month, in, in reference to this final report, that Cheney would not quote sign onto any narrative that suggests Republicans are inherently racist or suggests every American who believes God has blessed America is a white supremacist. I, I mean, I, I wonder sort of what you make of that reasoning, um, and, and then if you're surprised that the final one-six report basically fails to mention white Christian nationalism.
7: Well I think that comment points to a continuing confusion among many people including lawmakers about Christian nationalism itself. I think that they fear that confronting Christian nationalism might be misconstrued as an attack on Christianity or mm-hmm. Christians. And Nothing could be further from the truth, and, and that's the work that we are trying to draw attention to at a campaign called Christians Against Christian Nationalism. Uh, we are trying to draw attention to what Christian nationalism is and to provide resources, particularly to Christians, who I think bear a special responsibility in distinguishing Christian nationalism from Christianity itself. Christian nationalism turns Christianity's gospel of love into a false idol of power. It turns John's gospel teaching us that God so loved the world on its head, saying falsely that God has a special plan for the United States or that God loves the United States more than any other country or that God has preordained election results. And so this political ideology is being it's fueling election denial in many places. It's also fueling continuing attacks on our democracy. And so I I think it is somewhat predictable and understandable that members of Congress are reticent to tread into any kind of Uh, any kind of discourse that would be construed as an attack on religion. So I think it's up to the American people and, again, Mm. a special responsibility on Christians to explain why that's not the case, Um, because if we don't confront Christian nationalism, then we are leaving ourselves open to future attacks like what we saw on January
1: 6th. Amanda Tyler, Executive Director of the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty, thank you for your time tonight. There's more to come. Thank you. Stay with us. TV news is a team effort, and among the many people who dedicate much of their lives to the pursuit of truth and knowledge and getting the news on air, there are few who are not just the best at what they do, they also imbue their work and their life with grace and humanity. Dax Tehera, who was one of those people, died suddenly last week, just before Christmas. He was only 37 years old. Dax began his career as an NBC News associate before rising through the ranks, working in L.A. and here in New York. Dax worked with Alex Wagner for a long time as well, helping to launch Now with Alex Wagner, one of two shows he helped start here at MSNBC. He also led breaking news coverage for the network. As one of his mentors here told me, his rapid rise was a mix of heart and hustle. I met Dax in these hallways when I was still a guest on the network, and he introduced himself as though his name preceded him, as though he was someone. He was going somewhere, and he was going to take you with him. And then he did. When he left NBC, we worked together at Fusion, where Dax produced everything from election coverage to international stories. And then, at just 35 years old, he became the executive producer of ABC News' Sunday program, This Week. Dax knew how to capture the essence of a story, he protected his talent. And he cared about you, his audience. To be produced by Dax was a privilege. To be loved by him was a gift. And those were the roles he treasured most. Husband, father, brother, son, cousin, and the loyalist of friends. We're keeping his wife, Veronica, their two young daughters, and his parents in our hearts and in our prayers. That does it for us tonight. We're going to see you again tomorrow.